On this week's episode of the Next Stage Podcast, I wanted to offer listeners a deep dive into the powerful Torah perspective that has for decades driven many of the most ideological Jewish nationalists living in the West Bank, in the Judea and Samaria regions. Despite the fact that its adherents still comprise only one of many sectors of Israeli society, with relatively small representation in the Knesset, this is an ideology that has had, and continues to have, a major impact on Israeli society. And it's really crucial for anyone trying to make sense of Israeli culture or Israeli politics to understand. Not only because it represents the beliefs driving the Jews who've spearheaded efforts to populate the territories, or because of its centrality to the thinking of a growing majority of combat officers in Israel's military, but also because out of all of the various ideological perspectives that exist today, it's the understanding of the Jewish return to our homeland and to political independence that's actually most consistent with what the Jewish people have believed about ourselves and about human history for thousands of years. This perspective, which is primarily rooted in an ancient, holistic approach to understanding our Torah that was returned to the people of Israel in modern times by Rav Kook, has until recently been almost completely inaccessible to the English-speaking world. So I invited one of my closest teachers, Rav Moshe Kaplan, to join me on this week's episode of The Next Stage. Rav Moshe is arguably the foremost expert on Rav Kook's teachings in the English language, and he was a personal student of Rav Tzvi HaKohen Kook, the son and successor to his father, Rav Avram Yitzhak HaKohen Kook. Some of this episode might be a little hard to follow for listeners with less experience engaging Israel's Torah, but I really think that those who make the extra effort to understand what Rav Moshe has to say will find the deeper understanding well worth the effort. And just to make this episode a little easier to follow, I want to quickly share one teaching from Rav Kook that not only has central importance to our chapter of Jewish history, but might also go a long way in making some of the harder-to-follow parts of this episode significantly easier to understand. Rav Kook teaches in the 18th chapter of Orot that as the Jewish people returns to national life in our land, three powerful forces emerge. He defines these forces as the Kodesh, the Ummah, and the Enoshut. Kodesh, which means holy, refers to the religious Jews. Ummah, which is national, refers to the nationalist Jews. And the Enoshut, which is humanity, refers to the universalist Jews. Now, Rav Kook further teaches that although these forces are at first mutually antagonistic, they're ultimately meant to all merge and coexist within a larger camp of supernal kedusha that fully expresses each of them. When Rav Kook wrote this essay, the Kodesh force could be seen as the Haredi community. The Ummah force could be identified with the various Zionist parties, and the Enoshut force was represented by Jews on the left who identified more with the struggles of humanity at large than with the particular struggles of the Jewish people. Although Rav Kook teaches that 
each of these forces is an equally valid expression of Israel's identity and that each is a crucial component, a crucial ingredient for the Jewish people ultimately fulfilling our historic mission, he warns that these forces must mature and develop independently before merging into a supercamp so as not to be diluted. In Rav Kook's generation, there actually was an attempt to combine two of these forces, the Kodesh and the Ummah, the Holy and the National, in what was called religious Zionism. This basically amounted to a premature synthesis that attempted to combine two isms, but ultimately watered down both by producing a camp less committed to Torah than the Haredi community and less nationalist than even the labor Zionists. It should be mentioned that during the Six-Day War in 1967, it was the cabinet ministers from the National Religious Party that opposed liberating ancient Jerusalem, while ministers from the Labor Party pushed for Israel to take the old city. But once Jerusalem was unified under Jewish sovereignty, something changed. There emerged in the wake of that war a new national religious camp that's arguably more committed to our Torah than the Haredi community, and definitely more nationalist than even the right-wing Likud party. This new national religious camp, often referred to as Khardal, Haredi Datilumi in Israeli society, pretty much led the major efforts to re-establish Jewish life in the territories won in the Six-Day War. But in order to reach the level of supernal holiness, the camp Rav Kook presents as the necessary ideal, the Khardal world, which currently leads the fights against the division of our land and against the westernization of Israeli society, needs to incorporate into itself the values of Enoshut, universalist values committed to the liberation and betterment of all humankind. According to the perspective you're about to hear, merging the already synthesized Kodesh and Umma camps with the camp of Enoshut is one of the major prerequisites for advancing Jewish history forward and helping the nation of Israel become what we came back to life to be. So with that short introduction, I hope you enjoy this deep dive with Rav Moshe Kaplan into the teachings of Rav Kook and the ideology that drives one of Israel's most controversial socio-political tribes. This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Welcome to the month of Elul. And with me on the show today is a very influential teacher of mine, uh, Rav Moshe Kaplan. Rav Moshe is a teacher of mine for many years and one of the foremost students of Rav Kook and the educators in the worldview philosophy of Rav Kook, especially in the English language. There are very few places where this Torah can be learned. And therefore, I've asked uh, Rav Moshe to join us on the show today and provide a perspective we don't usually hear for what's taking place in history the last couple hundred years of Jewish history, maybe even world history. Rav Moshe, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Be together again. I would say um, 
maybe just to start off, give listeners a little bit of a basic understanding. Uh, who is Rav Kook? When we speak about uh, the teachings of the personality of Rav Kook, who is Rav Kook and, and why is Rav Kook important to what's taking place in history today? Well, this is very fitting for these days because the third of Elul is the Yorkshire passing of Rav Kook in 1935, 85 years ago. He was a very unique uh, scholar, a special soul that unified the divine idea, the Torah ideals of the loving of Israel, loving of Torah, the love of God, the love of the land of Israel. But the specialness, the uniqueness beyond the amazing intellectual and memory and capacities and Torah scholarship in all aspects of Torah, halacha and Nigle, the revealed Torah, the deeper weakness of Torah, poetry, song, everything, all inclusive. He, in the historical perspective, which the main significance is that since we're living in these amazing times after the 2,000 years of exile, of a separate and fractured and scattered nation, God, with his mercy, is bringing us back to our full stature, our full grandeur as a living, vital nation. And he, God sends down leaders and souls that are needed to meet the needs of the nation, to meet the needs of each generation. Adon Kolen Hashemot, God is the master of his souls, the mover of history. He sends down the leaders that are needed to guide and direct at special times. And here we're at a special turning point of after those 2,000 years of scattering, of, of fracturing, of Judaism being, seeing itself as the individual. The, uh, the Moran Brachot, page 8a, says all that God has after the destruction of the temple, the exile, the four cubits of halacha, the individual domain. Judaism becomes limited, relegated to the individual, private, spiritual domain. You and your Shabbat and Kashrut and your yeshiva, maybe you feel a part of your community, but the absence of the full name of God that comes to the nation of Israel, the main expression of Aragur is to be that kingdom of priests and holy nation that was lacking. No government, no army, no, no central, uh, no Beit HaMikdash, no prophecy, no Sanhedrin. All the main institutions of Jewish uh, manifestation of God's name in the world were absent. So we were limited to Judaism was indeed those four cubits. And then, and that's and then uh, Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai also, when the Jews began to go into exile, you could say you could translate the Torah from the cloud to the prat, from the collective, the full vitality of a nation, now to individuals. You don't have sacrifices. Now dealing with the Gimut Hasadim, the, the, the charity among Jews, the giving. And with all the law, everything was now funneled now to the, the best that could be done was on the individual level. We don't have the big, the full-blown, the full-size name of God, the Kiddush Hashem, sanctification of God's name. Now in your private level. And now of Cook. At this turning point of history, when we're coming back after that time, when God now has the mercy of God to bring us back to the, like, the full scale, the full grandeur, then there's also, he sends down the leaders that are needed to describe, to recognize, to be aware, and to guide and to direct that new return, that new life, that totality of life, to understand who we are, what we are. And that is, again, that's Rav Kook is this unique soul, again, beyond the dimension. Even rabbis that met him and saw it wasn't just... Um, Rabbi Gershuni, we heard once a study, the uh, student of Avkuk, and he, he learned in Europe under the great masters of, uh, of Shimon Shkop, of, of, of Baruch Ber, Leibowitz. He came to Avkuk and it was a different dimension. It's not just, like I said, total mastership of all the Torah, all the Halakha, all the Babli, Yushami, Midrashim. It's, it's this whole level of this perspective, this, of this, again, the catchword I said is Achdut, this totality, this uh, total perspective, holistic view of all. The understanding of, of the history, seeing the process of what is taking place, the nation coming back to the land, 
with all of its difficulties and then and the failures seemingly and then lackings and then and deficiencies to see what God is doing here. That perspective of seeing beyond the moment. Like Rabbi Akiva, the end of Makot, the Gemara says how, right? The, the destruction of the temple, rabbis are walking and see the jackals coming out of the Holy of Holies, the holiest place. And here these animals are walking, treading and, and everyone, the rabbis are crying. Tanaim, great rabbis, scholars. And Rabbi Akiva is laughing. They <laughs> say, what are you... What, uh, what are you laughing? Don't you understand? Don't you appreciate? Aren't you aware of what's going on? Don't you see the destruction? Rabbi Kiva sees really, very well what the others see, but he sees even more. He sees what is brewing, what is growing, what is developing. Out of this destruction comes out a bigger and final third building. He sees, again, beyond the moment. And that's this vision of Emunah, this gift that of Kuk, this soul that was sent down to guide the nation in this difficult period of Jews coming back, Jews that rejected, rebelled against uh, all that was holy and uh, sanctified by the Jews for thousands of years, the Torah, the mitzvot, here against all that, but yet building the land, coming back, dedication, devotion, how to make sense of all that, what's the, to yell at them, to scream at them, how to relate to this, it's this, this uh, atheism, so how to put it all together, to see what Hashem is doing here, to see within, and then to be able to guide that, that child that is growing, that was developing, with all the stages, the difficult stages of adolescence, etc., all that it needs a special vision, a special perspective that sees beyond the moment, what is growing here. And that, again, is this special soul, this uh, Torah scholarship of Rav Kook that has this vision of seeing the significance of their return to life. What is the process? What is the source? And where is it going? And thus, the ability to help it go, continue to facilitate that process to bring it to completion. Because on the simple level, the surface level, there's a lot of room to be against it, right? There's anti-Zionist... How can we participate with this? There's a lot to be against. Rav Tzuda used to say, what, there's nothing to be against? It's clear what's, what's wrong. But the deeper vision, right? It says in the Gemara Tamid, the Sefer Tamid, page 32, I believe. Ezu HaChacham Nolad. Who is the wise that sees the Nolad, sees that which is being born, sees that which is developing and coming, not just the moment. The rabbis actually give this key to understanding the redemption process that Rav Kook brings down in his letters in the volume two, in Gerta Kana and other places, how the generation of the redemption is, was unique in that there were generations that were, had good souls, had good uh, inner divine content, and had good uh, behavior, lived accordingly. And there were generations that had bad, let's say, corrupted souls, corrupted spiritual energy, corrupt people, and then lived accordingly, idol worshiping and then illicit relations, etc. But the generation of the Mashiach, the rabbis say in the Tikkun Zohar, the Rabkuk brings, that the generation of the Mashiach is good on the inside and bad on the outside. The behavior level, the external level, is negative. And if that's all you see, and that's all you judge by, then indeed you will be against and reject, and who wants them and who needs them, and not Jews, and are, certainly can't participate, and etc., etc. All that we know that those that attracted or didn't understand the, the deeper understanding of Rav but this vision of Rabbi Akiva, this vision of Emunah, that is unlike others that, again, have scholarship and learn the Torah, but it's more than just the, the sources. It's more than just a compilation of how much you've learned and studied. This is a whole neshama, this level of perspective, this insight, this x-ray vision. That is um, unique, and that wasn't available up till now. In other words, the, the nation it didn't need it also. In other words, God also guides when the time of... Uh, learning for the, let's say, the inner workings of the soul, whatever. In the secular world, it became Freud and others, and the Baal Shem Tov came to reveal the Torah, the spiritual, the divine significance of the inner workings of the soul and, and Hasidut. 
So of course comes in the time of everything is now coming back. The time when, and not just the nation, the physical, the spiritual, the, the universal, the national, religious, all the ideas and all the, everything, science and wisdom, man is coming back to the full, the curtain is going up and all the divine ideal of goodness that permeates all. So therefore there has to be the Torah that relates and, and, and explains how to do, how to, how to relate to, how to put each piece of this giant puzzle together. Otherwise you just see a myriad of a diversity of ideas and concepts and it's mind-boggling. How to, all we know is to stick to the old. That was what was done up till now. We stick what we had, Torah and mitzvot, anything that's against that, anything that doesn't fulfill the mitzvot is no good, is treif, is evil. We have to stay away from it. And that was the way they rejected Zionism was something new, uh, this new movement to come back to the land. My grandfather lived without Eretz Israel and my great-grandfather, who we, uh, we can manage also, we'll wait for the Mashiach. But comes a time when these, all these ideals are now coming back to reality. And at the same time, we need the God sends down this unique soul that guides us how to understand and relate to that reality. What is that reality? To put the mirror in front of us to know what it is, who we are, what we really are, what we're returning to, and where we're going. I would say two words, maybe, the summarize of Cook's maybe unique elements, the, the understanding of oneness, the harmony, the totality of all, seeing it all of it, not, again, not only in Torah and also all the elements of Torah, that was unique in and of itself, like I said, halacha, agadah, the mystical, the spiritual, the, the poetic, the halacha, the nigla, the, 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 everything. And the outside world, in other words, the tahada, the God that runs the world. God is the master of all of history. To see how all that fits in, that is one aspect. And the second aspect, which is connected, is like I said before, the seeing beneath, the seeing beyond the surface, beyond the moment, which is connected to seeing the one, seeing the one behind all the seemingly diversified uh, events and then scattered and unrelated events, how to see how they're all connected to that one. There were those that said that because of this ability to see the different parts of the puzzle and the land of Israel, the beginning before the state, were these two camps called the Yeshuvah Yashan, Yeshuvah Chadash, the old camp and the new camp. There were those that were returning to life and the, there were those that clung to the old, the, the ancient and the true and the Torah, the mitzvot, the spiritual side. And who needs the government? We don't need land and government and army. That's all for the nations. We don't deal with politics. And there are those that were coming back to life, infused with this new soul, the time of the redemption, the Shammai, Tiran, Shabbat, the nation is infused by this new national consciousness, awareness. That's the time of Gula that God implants in us. And there are those that want this life, they demand fullness, vitality, life. And they think, unfortunately, that that is uh, outside of Torah, that the Torah negates all those things. We have to look outside the ghetto. We have to get away from the ghetto and outside and see the enlightenment and the big world, the university and science and wisdom. And they thought that was, again, you can't go with Torah. That's, it's either one or the other. So we had these two camps that ultimately came to Israel also. The old camp that stuck to the religious living here, learning Torah and dying here. And the new camp that wanted to be the pioneer and settling in gung-ho and building the land, etc. nationalism. And with Cook, seeing, again, this vision of seeing the truth in both, seeing the necessity of both aspects that make up the whole of Israel, that need the physical and the spiritual. The spiritual isn't against the body. Then the Shema is not against the body. It comes to infuse it with life and meaning and purpose. But unfortunately, again, before that, they were seen as two camps, and there are many writers that wrote, historians also, that of course saved the, the state of Israel, what would be the state of Israel, saved this, uh, these two polarized camps that were at, at not like it is today even, there was much, the hatred and the animosity was, was very strong. And there are those that wrote that he saved um, the, the issue, the settlement of Israel. Now, Rav Moshe, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that Rav Kook presented almost a different Torah, almost a, a new Torah, 
than what was available before? It's um, returning to the old, that which was neglected. You made reference to Rabbi Akiva a few times. You mentioned you compared the perspective of Rav Kook to Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was one of the major sages of Jewish history, one of the giants of Jewish history, but specifically at a time when we were experiencing ourselves returning to national self-determination. We were fighting a successful revolt against the Roman Empire to free our land, to rebuild our nation. That's essentially, it's the same perspective. It's the same Torah. It's the Torah of Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, as you know, supported, right? Bar Kochva. But yes, what I want to say, like I said, Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai that translated the Torah to the mm-hmm. individual, Rabbi Kook is just returning it to the full size. Like, it's not something new. It's returning to the old that wasn't available, that wasn't necessary, wasn't irrelevant in the exile for the last 2,000 years. Indeed, like I said, the Gemara says, we only had the four cubits. We only had the private domain of Judaism. And that was enough to study, to learn. All the laws of Shabbat can take a lifetime. So the study of the redemption, the study of the content of the nation, the Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of God's name in the world, this holistic view of to be a kingdom of priests and holy nation. What is this significance of statehood, of national existence of the Jewish people? That was a dream for the future. That was irrelevant. The last two orders of the Mishnah, the oral law, Kochim and Tarot, were not learned and studied during the exile, except for the few erudite few, the scholars. But two-thirds of the oral law weren't studied. Why? No one denied that they're part of Torah. <laughs> it's God's word. But there was, like I said, you could spend a lifetime just learning the laws of Kashrut and Shabbat and the holidays. The part that was irrelevant, and you know, it didn't relate to the day-to-day life, was unfortunately neglected. Not because of, again, not part of Torah. So to the study of the Tanakh was also neglected. They assumed that you learned it when you're fourth grade or first grade. You know it now. No one in Yeshiva didn't learn Tanakh. Dafka the Nitziv of began where Rav learned. Indeed, they the study of Tanakh again. But this was a novelty, the, the study of the basics, of the bigger picture, which weren't, um, you know, the best word, relevant. Rav Kook brings us back to that. Well, the Gemara in Sukkah, page 28a, is a whole list of the students of Hillel Azakein, Hillel, and the 80s giants of students and divide them into the, the, the levels that could have received prophecy like Moshe and the, low, the lowest level of Yohanan says that, that he could have been, he knew all the Torah, all this, he knew the big things and the small things. And the Gemara says there, a long list. But, so what is the Gemara says, what do you mean he knew all the things, the small things and the big things? The Gemara says the small things is Havayot Abai Varava. The small things are the give and take of the Gemara, the big back and forth give and take of the polemics of the Torah, the Talmudic study. That's the small thing. That's the Torah we're learning Talmud for years, for centuries. That's the small thing. The Gemara, this is in the Talmud Bavli saying, but this is the small. So what's the big thing? That it says, the Gemara says there is the Maseh Merkava, like Maseh Bereshit, Maseh Merkava, how God created the world. You could say how God runs the world, the ideals of Torah, the divine inner essence of the, the content of those laws. What is the meaning? What is the goal? What is the purpose of all that? Not just the how to do, what to do, but what's it all about? That was neglected. Even though that's the bigger Torah, that unfortunately, that Rav Kook, again, uniquely called for the return. Not only, I shouldn't say uniquely, the Ramchal, in the beginning of the path of the just, the, the Chovot al-Vavot, duties of the heart, his introduction also, how the people were dealing with the polemics with theoretical, hypothetical situations were learned, and not learning the study of Emunah, the studies of duties of the heart, the studies of the bigger picture, etc. There are the rabbis that called throughout, throughout the generations, but... Like I said, as practical speaking, they, that was so un, un, almost impossible. The, the, the people learning and working and developing in the exile, that like I said, to manage to, to learn the, the tractates that we have to study, not only the, the Kochim and Tarot 
and the, the inner workings of Torah, like the Shlaka Dosh says, that's special, that's unique to the land of Israel. That's the unique Torah Ver Israel, the study of the, the inner workings of Torah, the ideals of Torah, the goals of Torah. So Rav Kook didn't make these things up. It's not a new Torah. This is the return to the Torah of the Mashiach, the Torah that we had uh, of the collective level, you know, the bigger understanding, which, like I said, wasn't so necessary and maybe would even be if it was, wasn't proper even then. When you're not ready, you don't teach a two-year-old you don't have to teach him nuclear physics, etc. He has to learn the alphabet. He has to learn the simple arithmetic. And then he grows to develop. In other words, there's also hashkacha, the divine guidance of what is studied, what is learned by Amishra. When, when it doesn't apply, when we're not ready to understand these bigger, holistic, universal concepts, they can be confusing. They can take you out of the focus on the individual performance of the mitzvot, on the individual agile, and that can be dangerous. So there weren't that many that studied these bigger things. I've always passed on this inner workings of Torah, the deal of the Ramban and the giants of Torah. But the Rav Kook came and, again, was sent to bring about to this awakening of returning because now the nation is back alive. All the bigger ideals are coming back alive and now we have to understand who and what we are, what, what is taking place and what's outside the window, what, what's going on outside. Otherwise, the Torah is like backward. How do you say is Mufager is going behind, this, you know, behind the times. It's not even up to what's going on to relate to what's going on. You're still talking about an exile reality of the four cubits of Alcha. Meanwhile, the world is advanced, modern society, man, wisdom, and such. And here's still your Torah that you only relate to the details. Again, not the Torah. The Torah has the bigger wisdom, has the, even the way futuristic view of what the world is meant to be, what will be. But unfortunately, that was not studied. So Rav Kook, yes, so he came back and returned the uh, focus on what you have to call the bigger picture, this holistic view of Torah. The to- it's not a new Torah. It's the same Torah from the sources, from the... From the same Chazal, from the same God, and from Sinai, the, the written law, the oral law, and the deeper works of Torah. But we have to get back to learning it. The Kuzari, the Maharal, the Ramchal. These are things that have to be studied and returned to, which were neglected. Right. So to summarize for our listeners, we could say that what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai did by transforming the Torah from the national to the personal, because of the historical necessity of his time, because of the needs of the Jewish people and history at the time, um, we can say that Rav Kook reversed in his time for the same reasons, because of the needs of history, because of the situation of the Jewish people, because of how things have changed. Rav Kook essentially reversed what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai did following the destruction of Jerusalem. Right, but reverse, yes, indeed. But reverse sounds and, like it's something bad. So just so it's clear for everyone, what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai did was temporary, uh, was meant to be temporary. It turned out to be roughly 2,000 years but it was Rav Kook who reintroduced the approach to Torah that existed before, that was appropriate for a nation and its land. Not only appropriate, but necessary. necessary. There's a lot of problems. So the nation gets up to know who he is and what he's doing. But yes, it's uh, indeed. Yochanan Ben-Zai also writes about the future goal. He knows it, like you said, he knows it's temporary. It wasn't meant to be the final word. We're going to be now just a bunch of individuals, religious Jews around the world. He always talks about the takanot that he made to remember the Migdash, to remember the Migdash and the, the return to the fullness. That he, that's really what you said is true. It's meant to be temporary. Right. So another thing you mentioned that I want to just address or point out for listeners is that there is this direct line between Rabbi Akiva, who, who was actually the student of the student of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, but maybe saw for his generation an opportunity to put things back right there and then. But you mentioned a direct line, essentially, Rabbi Akiva. I think you mentioned uh, the Kuzari, Rabbi Yudha Levi, the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, the Maharal of Prague, you know, meaning that there is actually this chain 
of Torah giants over the centuries who did focus on this Torah that Rav Cook essentially brought back to the masses. So, yes, I would maybe put it the three, the Kuzari, Kuzari, right, written by Rabbi Levi, uh, the Maral of Prague, and the Vilna Gon, 300 years ago, mm-hmm. 280 years ago. I would put the, the Vilna Gon definitely in that uh, continuation of Rav Cook. He was the student of the student, right? Rav Cook was uh, the student in Voloshin Yeshiva, set up by Rav Chaim Voloshin, the, the main student of the Vilna Gon. The Natsiva Voloshin was the head of that Yeshiva, and he writes later, different testimonies, how he said it was worth having, setting up the yeshiva if it was just to have this student, Rav Avramitra, going cook to come to learn there. Yes, definitely this connection, the connection of, you see, the Kuzari, the land of Israel, the nation of Israel, the morale, the teachings in the Vilna Gaon, yes, continued also down to the practical side, sending his students to Eretz Yisrael in the 18, early 1800s, to not just to make aliyah for the mitzvah of aliyah, but to facilitate the redemption process. Right, and just to clarify something else that you said, because... I introduced you as a student of Rav Kook. By Rav Kook, I meant Rav Tzihuda, Rav Tzihuda Kohen Kook, who you mentioned. We said that Rav Kook, Rav Avram Yitzchak Kohen Kook, uh, the student of the Nitziv, of, in Volozhin, he left the world 85 years ago, the third of Elul in 1935. So his son, Rav Tzihuda Kohen Kook, continued his teachings. And that is who you merited to learn under. And can you please just explain for our listeners very quickly what that relationship is between Rav Kook and Rav Kook, when people make the distinction or the commonality, when people speak about Rav Tziyuda within the context of Rav Kook. Rav Tziyuda saw himself totally as a total, you can call it subordination, total betul uh, to his father. He says, I'm only, there's nothing of himself. He's totally continuing. He's the one that put out all the writings. Again, the Nazir put out the Orot Kodesh, but again, the, the teachings and the writing, uh, what we have and what was continued is through Rav Tziyuda Kok. He's the one that uh, had all the writings. And Rav Kook himself, in the letters in volume one, Rav Kook says to another rabbi that you can talk to my son and then uh, whatever, be with him, etc. if you want my opinion, because he is the one that Makshiv is almost the only one that listens to the sound of the Siach Nishmati, the speech of my soul. Rav Kook testified on his son that he's like the only one that truly understands him. So I think more than that, and that was when he was like, I think, 16 years old, Rav Tzuda. I think that's enough testimony. I don't need more that I can add to that, that he himself said that he's the one that understands him and continues all his life was dedicated just to the spreading the teachings, to physically, in other words, the manuscripts and the teaching itself. But yes, he applied them to the modern reality of uh, now there's a state. Rav Kook died before the state. Although Rav Kook spoke about that and foresaw what was going on. But nevertheless, Rav Tzuda faced the issues of applying all those ideals now to practice, indeed, yeah, right. with that same perspective. And would you say there's any... That others have a part of the view of Rav Kook. They have the spiritual side, the mystical side, the rabbinic side. But again, since it was so complex, so to speak, so holistic, so all-encompassing, that's why each one has a truth. Each one sees a part of Rav Kook, takes a part, and... Uh, and it's not that he's wrong, but taking a part is always the falsehood. Of it. It's only a part, partial view of the whole. Rav Tzuda had more of this holistic view of his father, this totality, which is the difficult part, because it's so all-encompassing, it's not easy to get it all. So yes, definitely the son is he that, and also today, the students of Rav Tzuda, there are those that grab a certain aspect and a certain part, and it's hard to understand that the whole novelty of his teachings is the non-partial, the totality, the all-encompassing. 
But that takes a certain perspective, a certain inclination of this holistic view. It's not for everyone. It's not so simple. But there are, in fact, schools and scholars who do have the holistic view of Rav Kook and are able to teach it. Yes, Baruch Hashem, they met uh, young students today that are continuing that was writers. I don't want to mention names, but yes, there are those that are luckily God doesn't leave us. He doesn't leave us uh, abandon the nation. There's still leaders today and young scholars that are growing up with this holistic view. Yes, there are unfortunately those that say they learned from Rav Kook or whatever that have this partial view and unfortunately get to different conclusions. And that's sad. It's frustrating, so to speak, when you see it, because, uh, again, you can quote Rav Kook. You can sort of sentence here and you say, see, he says this, or I learned, um, which, again, is problematic because, indeed, he includes everything. So you can find everything. But the problem is to be the picture, the balance, the, the totality, the holistic, the relationship of each part to the other, how they fit in. Each part is true, but isolated, it can, it's very dangerous. It's very, it's not, that's what falsehood is, taking one part of the puzzle and thinking that's the whole. Without mentioning any names, are you able to point to a specific issue where some people with only a fragmented understanding of Rav Kook are coming to one conclusion, while those who have more of a holistic understanding uh, are coming to a different conclusion? Uh, the modern issues, the modern uh, the questions that come up uh, day to day, the relationship of uh, a religion and state, how much to, as, if, as if to compromise, how much the Rav Kook unified the holy and the mundane, Kodesh Bechol. And so if they're both important, he said, right, we need both, the body and the soul. There are those that see, let's say we have to, I don't want to say, update the Torah or fit the Torah to the modern state that is growing. Again, not I'm talking about the secular or the reform, whatever. Those that, so to speak, are orthodox, but with the, maybe the modern emphasis of modernizing the Torah to fit the needs of today. As if Rav Kook would say that, you see, we have to, he sanctified the body. He, we needed the body. We needed the physical. We need the national. That's true. But again, I guess I had to relate to it. So issues of the national, you can call it religion and state. What's going on today, the army, women in the army, uh, other aspects of uh, family, what is the Jewish people, what is the basis for the future of Am Yisrael, those are issues that some people maybe feel that you want to, Rav Kook was very, you can call it maybe open-minded, he was very open to all, but again, open wasn't, it was all based on Torah and from Torah, that the Torah, that the bigger Torah that sees how each element has its place, but there's a place, not the whole place, knows exactly the limits and the borders of each thing, but there was that say, you see Rav Kook was open, so maybe there are those that could apply so to speak, in the name of Rav Kook, to be very modern, to be very open, to be very accepting. I was thinking of other examples, like uh, ascending the Temple Mount or cooperating with Christian evangelicals. There are students of Rav Kook who come okay. to different conclusions on these issues. Right, okay, right. So w would you say that there are conclusions that those with a more holistic understanding of Rav Kook come to versus those with fragmented understandings? Oh, that's the explanation. There are the few, not that many, there's few rabbis of, of big scholarship about the Temple Mount, that is, I don't think, I wouldn't say that because I have this fragmented, but uh, Rav Kook was pretty explicit. I mean, there's no really room to... Our listeners have no idea what Rav Kook's positions on these issues. <laughs> uh, the Beit HaMikdash, as opposed to the land of Israel, where he felt to come as is in the process that develops in stages from the, so to speak, secular, non-understanding of the spiritual significance of life is to come, to build, to develop it. And then more and more, the process goes from the spirit, physical building, like the human body, the individual that grows as an infant, and whatever, he grows up the physical side, the motor development, and then the spiritual, then the bar mitzvah, then the obligation to rab mitzvot. And we're recognizing the significance of even what we call a secular beginning, secular state. But that's regarding Eretz Yisrael. The Beit HaMikdash is a different dimension. That's already requires the understanding 
as much as you build a building there and you think it's a park and we go up and we conquer it, so to speak, like another settlement area, we now Jewish sovereignty. And then later we'll understand, no, the Beit HaMikdash is like ultra, how do you say it, um, extra territorial. It's, that's the, the divine in this world, literally this dimension of space that meets the, the, the bridge between space and beyond space. That's not a level that we just go up and build and later it will be uh, understood how important it is. To reach that level, to go up to the Temple Mount before it's time, before we're ready, before we understand, it actually belittles, and Rav Cook wrote that was very dangerous. It's very, uh, puts us backwards. In other words, it's like the eye, touching it, putting your finger in the eye. It's a very delicate area. That's the, I don't know, the heart, the brain, like every tiny movement there has a great effect. If you're not doing it properly on the level of purity and understanding, then it's better to stay away. The absence makes the heart grow. In other words, the absence stuff that shows your understanding, appreciation of what great level the Ben Amitash is. This isn't something you just go up and then uh, enjoy, take pictures, selfie. Everyone goes up there and now we see we have Jewish control. The Ben Amitash is when we go up there because we appreciate what it is and how far we are, that shows, that brings you closer. In other words, if you understand how far away you are from it, how far it is from us, how great, how lofty, what level we're aspiring for, of what a different level of humanity, of reality, of God's presence in this world, literally this conduit of, of Kedushah, Shechina, the divine presence in this world, that is not just another location. So then, if the more you distance, and you're like, like Moshe Rabbeinu, that stood away from the fire, the burning bush, he felt this holiness that you don't just run up, and wow, holiness, I'll grab it. The holiness causes you this awe of realizing how, take off, you know, take off your shoes before this holy place. So Dafkadi, not going up, and the halachic decree of not going up, and all the rabbis up till his day, until this day, and Rosh Hashanah, continuing of the, yes, the forbidden, the, the problem of karet, because of that, of, of going in beyond the level of what we're supposed to, uh, is very significant. Of Cook writes that that actually affects the uh, continuation of the redemption process. Or the improper relationship to the holy, holy site uh, actually minimizes the, the energy that, that goes to build a nation that wants to build the land and continue. That's outside the Beit HaMinah. In other words, it's a deep, it's a deep thing. Rav Kook writes in Mishpat Kod and other places. But yes, Rav Kook was definitely against going up to the Temple Mount. But what was the source you mentioned? Uh, he said in Mishpat Kohen, he writes, uh, in the book of the Halei Shut, the response to literature, he writes about this also, how the Dafka, the closeness, you're getting closer to it, is by your physical <laughs> distancing. Um, we're not allowed to go. In other words, we, and those that say they think they know where we're allowed to, it's, it's not so simple. There are different opinions. There are Koren, from Zaman Koren, from Fred Arba, from Fred Arba has a whole book. He's like the expert of the measurement, whatever. He even says, he doesn't go out. He says, it's, you can't really know. The measurements we have today aren't accurate. And his whole thing, his study was, that's what his study was, is to know the measurements and the places exactly. But he says, we can't know. It's not, you can't, based on that, to go up and say, we're sure that now we're in the proper place of the holy parts of the Temple Mount. But, but even beyond even beyond not knowing the proper places, even assume we did, uh, we have a situation now that the Temple Mount has become a focal point for nationalist activism, for national expression, to push back and to say, look, we're here because you know we're prevented, so now we want to do it. Uh, that leads to people going up who don't care where they walk and don't necessarily take the ritual precautions before going up. Like nationalists, for ostensibly positive reasons, for the sake of... You know, don't go up, but they do go up. They do go up, meaning there are people who do go up who, who couldn't care less about a mikvah bath beforehand. Right. In other words, once you let the people go up, those that, so to speak, like you said, do it with the proper, if it's possible, within the limits, maybe even the extreme, like say the, the extra limits and the proper mm -hmm. spiritual preparation before. But like you said, there are those that go up now, it's open, now it becomes uh, 
I don't want to call it a picnic, but now other people that are, don't take those precautions go up, and that is, yes, that causes a... Like, it becomes a political demonstration. Yes, but I'm thinking but the problem is in that. What's wrong with that? The problem is that that causes the going up of the desecration of this holy site, which is the source, the heart, the soul of all the other activities that are taking place in the land, in the land of Israel. In other words, if you put your finger in the eye, like I said, I think Rav Kook used that expression, then you're damaging the, all the life functions outside. You're not advancing the political situation and the possession of the Jews in the land of Israel. You think you are. You have good intentions. I don't doubt their intentions. But uh, Rav Cook says that's not the way to uh, bring about the continuation of this redemption process of our possession and the, the, the presence in the land of Israel. Dafka by the sanctity and understanding the, the lofty level of the Beit HaMikdash, the ultimate goal of all this, uh, that appreciation is what enables and facilitates the process itself. Ironically, you might think that going up is the one that shows that I care and I want to go and after the ones who are not going up, because of that understanding, uh, are actually what help the process. But yes, you're like what you said, if, if I understood you properly, that the going up of the ones who do take precautions also cause that those that go up without the precautions, and that is what is very problematic in and of itself, yes. Right. And I think it's also fair to say that uh, the Temple Mount is something that is not really relevant to our stage of the development of Jewish liberation, meaning that process of Israel coming back to life is not at the point where we should be focused on the Temple Mount. There are things to achieve before we get there. There's development that needs to take place internally before we can get to the point that the Mount is even relevant. And I think we see this with David and Natan in Sefer Shmuel. When David wants to build the Mikdash, he's essentially told by Natan, the time is not yet right. Like, you have more to do before the nation is ready for that. Okay, okay. David was very careful, right? At first he was in Hebron, then when he had the unified the agreement of the whole nation, then he went to Yerushalayim. But yes, your state is, like you said, but that's also divinely prescribed. We have to learn and study. We have to learn all the Torah, the laws of the Beit HaMikdash, the Chafetz Chaim, Father of Kuk, you have to study the laws of the Mikdash. Later, the Kochim, like I said, that were neglected. The Chafetz Chaim wrote a book about those laws. And he said to Rav Kuk, you have to, you know, I'm going to set up a kolel and students that should learn, because now we're coming back to the redemption. We have to come back to the reality, know that you study it. I, one thing I will say before we move on is I do believe that those who agitate to ascend the Temple Mount and those who've kind of made it their issue, uh, I see that as very much coming from a healthy place of wanting to advance our revolution forward, wanting to go to the next stage of Jewish liberation, uh, but not really having the proper discussions over what that is. That's, I think, what we're lacking in this generation, you know, post-1967, post-coming back to our land, coming back to Jerusalem. We, I guess, in the time of Rav Tziyuda, it was very clear we have to go and develop Judea and Samaria and Gaza, the Golan Heights, Sinai. We had to strengthen our hold on these territories and develop Jewish life in these places. And we continue to do that. But those who are looking for the next step beyond that really haven't come to any conclusion beyond the Temple Mount. That's just like the obvious go-to that unfortunately... I think comes from the lack of deeper conversations over what the next stages of Israel's redemption might be before we get to the Mount. Okay. Yes. Uh, that, again, that unity, the harmony, like I said, David and Melech did move until he had the agreement of the nation. The unifying of Israel is one of the basic maybe elements. You see that we're still so fractured, unfortunately. And uh, the different elements, which is part of the process itself, the clarification of each of the different branches of, of life, of, Judy, of Jewish life, of Israeli life, all the branches are needed. So each one is like developing and each one develops, like Rav Kook writes in Orot, developing fully, thinking that me and only me, at the extent, to the exclusion of all the others. But each one, unfortunately, that's one of the ways that he develops fully and not 
half-baked of looking at that, maybe I should be that. Maybe each one thinks that my goal is the one and only goal at the exclusion of the others. And by that, ultimately, the full development of all of the different aspects, the physical and the spiritual, the universal, enables them ultimately to come back together as a complete, healthy, vital thing that, again, the unity, like I said before, of Cook's view of putting all the three together, all these three camps that he writes about in Orot, of the three camps to put them together, this holistic view of the fourth camp, he says, like the, the umbrella, the neshama, that it gives meaning and direction and the proper positioning of each of those three camps. So like, that's what we need now, this, basically the, the nation, the unity of Israel, the understanding of how all the different branches, not to become one, meaning equal, or how do you say, uniform, the same, like in the body, there's different limbs, but they're all needed and they all make up the one body. They're all complementary, all fulfill the, in their individual contribution to the totality of the one, the holistic, over, uh, say, the transcending one that is revealed through those different branches. And that's what we're needing now, the, the students or the continuation of our cook teaching to reveal the one, the overview of all the different branches. And that we don't have that yet. Now we're developing, working on that, but now we have a lot of friction between the different branches. But that mm-hmm. friction, again, it's, it's part of the process of the Beit HaMikdash is the oneness, is the totality. That's what I've, Neria, Zatal, one of the students of Avkot, who set up the Kfar uh, Roel Yeshiva, what he called the father of the Kippot Tzugot, the, the knitted Kippot generation. He said we didn't capture, we didn't, let's say, um, succeed in 1948, getting to the old city, to the Temple Mount in the old city, because the Jews were still uh, divided. We had the, as you know, uh, the, the Etzel, the Lechi, the Haganah, and each one was separate, and each one unfortunately didn't see themselves as one unit. Until 1967, when the Jews were unified, Saul, one army, then, then God, the, the gates were open, and then we returned back to the old city. Which is, that's by, again, this divine, if you don't have that unity, you won't be able to get to, that was the old city. And certainly, the unity that is required to get to the super unity, to get to the Temple Mount, that's the ultimate. And that's what we, first of all, have to work on, that unity, which, again, isn't just, um, I like you and you like me, but the deeper understanding of the positive necessity of each and every element, of each and every aspect, not when it oversteps its bounds, but to know that, not to reject it totally, and not to accept it as it is, so to speak, and it's absurd, like I said, going beyond its proper boundary, but each thing is needed, each aspect is needed of the nation. And that is what we're needing now, this leadership and this Torah, that's what we're trying to develop and learn and study, continue of this, I called it again, this holistic view, the bigger view, and then we'll get to the better meat. Then you'll see that the road will be paved and it won't require uh, like of Cook writes, it won't be, the Beit HaMikdash is shalom. It won't be need conquest and, and warfare. It, it'll be, the nations will recognize that, please go back to the Temple Mount. Please, we, we need you on the Temple Mount to, to, to sacrifice is what the, the rabbis say in the Midrash, that if the Greeks, the Romans knew what the Temple was for them, what benefit, what gift, what flow of energy comes to them and to the world, they would have put all their legions to defend it, certainly not to go in and destroy it. So that's what we're going to get to, the oneness that the nations will recognize when it's clear to us who we are, what we are. The final stage, I think, from what I've read, of Cook writes this, how to call it, a peaceful, uh, not just peaceful, it's, um, he says, Netzach Yerushalayim, Netzach is the, the eternity, the going over, but the, the Hod, the splendor, the Beit HaMikdash is no battle, no need for battle. It will be this um, world agreement or understanding of please, <laughs> beg us, like it says in Yeshua chapter 2, right, from Zion without the Torah, They'll come up to the, the house of the mountain of God and show, show us the way. Show us the ways of God. Show us how to connect to uh, the name of God, to the divine ideals, which is our function in the world, which is this whole process that you wanted to talk about, right, of what the redemption process we're coming back to is to return to our goal 
to be this conductor to this nation that leads the world to connect to to Hashem, to the source of life, to the source of good, and to infuse all with that goodness. So on that note, it might be beneficial to clarify for ourselves, for listeners, what is actually the mission of the children of Israel in history? How have we understood our historic mission for thousands of years? Is there a goal? Is there a mission? And if so, what is that mission? Mm. And how is it achieved? Well, like, what is the mission of the Jewish people in history? And how is that mission achieved? According to well, our source. I just, well, I said it quickly, but uh, it requires more of an overview to understand what I just said. To be this national entity, a living, vital nation in a land that unifies the body and soul, that unifies the heaven and earth, that unifies all of creation, all of the source, all of mankind to the divine, to the goals, to bring down the values of God, of good, of justice, of, of unity and harmony and love, to connect all, to plug the world into the divine. That's Am Yisrael's goal. It says in Yeshayahu, God says to the prophet Isaiah, 43:21, this nation have I created unto me to say my praise, to bring down the name of God, this ideal. Every nation has a certain function and contribution. It's like if you look at the whole, all of existence, all of creation as one big body. I'm going to take this metaphor, and there's different limbs, different functions. Every nation, everything has its goal, has its purpose, has its uh, contribution. The contribution of Am Yisrael is not just the science and medicine and wisdom and all the Nobel Prizes that people talk about, but to bring down that which is beyond this world into this world, to bring down the connect this world, the physical, the material, to the divine, not some spiritual lofty goal that is above the world, outside of the world, or even against the world, that we can't live. You have to avoid natural, normal life, the physical world, the demands. You have to become spiritual. Is it the physical or spiritual? You can't have both. Separation of church and state. There's a religion that thinks you have to separate from the physical or to reach holiness. Because their idea of holiness is something outside, something above. God is so great above and spiritual. But the divine goal, again, the source of one, the divine source that we say, God is one. The oneness of all, not just the quantity, there's no three gods or four gods. The oneness is the all, is the source of all, before all, that infuses all, that created all for a purpose. Everything has its goal, the physical as well as the spiritual, the body and the soul. And not that the goal is the destruction of the earth. The opposite, the, the infusion, like the body and the soul. The soul is what gives meaning and infuses it with meaning and purpose and, and, and more life and super life to the body. It doesn't come to destroy the body. Jewish spirituality, because the divine spirituality, which is the source of all, again, all meaning, all of it, not just the spiritual, not just the holy and above, and the belief, like I said, Christianity, the vows of celibacy, the ideal is to be in a monastery, to leave life, or like I said, not to get married, that sex is a sin, the physical is sinful, because the inability to imagine the possibility of sanctifying all, that the divine, this light, this good, this holiness, this indeed lofty, supernal good, permeates and infuses the body itself. The body becomes holy. The body becomes no not what we have today that it's, people can think it as something that is negative and then brings to evil and, and, and hatred and jealousy, and, etc. The, the opposite. Christianity understands the physical is evil. The body is sinful. And that cannot be, right, the sin of uh, the immaculate sin or the original sin that cannot be fixed. And I'm sure there's no such thing as can't be fixed. God isn't limited to the spiritual, to the heaven and up, as if give to the God to the God and the Kaiser to the Kaiser, right? The Christian. The separation, like that, of church and state. The God that we're talking about, the God that really created the world, that created all. He created the body, he created the world, he created the body, the, the created even the etzara, the physical desires and the needs. All those are meant to be and meant to be used properly, not to be. They are more challenging and it is more difficult. But the goal is to use them and use them properly. All the functions of life, 
And that takes, again, this bigger view, because if the simple view of religion of God is in the heavens and above, you have to leave this world, minimize your contact with the physical in order to escape, to get to, or even the, the Buddhists or Hinduism of the nirvana, to escape it all, to the, everything has to be escaped. There's no guarantee of the ultimate good. Am Yisrael, the guarantee, the source of one, is the source, the certainty of the ultimate fulfillment of the divine ideal, this good, this absolute good that will permeate all. It says in Zechariah, the end of in chapter 14, the prophet Zechariah, that in the future, the Mitzilot Asus will say Kodesh Lashem. The Mitzilot Asus is like the embellishment on the horse. The horse is like maybe you could call it one of the lower animals, let's say, and it has like these dress, you put, you dress it up with these, I don't know, um, different uh, embellishments and, and, and crowns, so to speak. And it says in the future, it'll say, holy unto God on these, on the dress of the horse. So the, it's very, Rav Kook used to say how it's very shocking. What do you mean? The, the Kodesh Hashem is the two words, you know, you're a Kohen. The Kodesh Hashem, those two words, holy unto God, was written on the tzitz, on the, the headpiece of the high priest, went into one day, the holiest day, and the holiest time, and the holiest place, and the holiest person, once a year, this, this headpiece that said holy unto God. In the future, that will be on the lowest dimension. Everything will be filled with the divine, this flow, this total infusion of goodness, of holiness, not just the spiritual. The body will become so, this one continuum from the spiritual down to the physical. And that's a different world. That's where we're headed to. But getting back to what you asked, that's Amishal's goal is to connect that, to bring that about, to live its national life, not a spiritual life. It's holy life. It says before we were given the Ten Commandments, it says you will be unto me, attempt to yuli mamlechet konim v'goy kadosh. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A nation with all the trappings of nationhood, government, politics, army, agriculture, commerce, industry, and all of that is holy. All of that is driven by a, a source of goodness to help others, not selfish, not a nationhood that is based on the hate of others or to overcome others, to conquer others, to put down others, but rather the, the love of good, the love of totality, of the giving good, of infusing all with blessing. It says to our forefathers, right? Through you will be blessed all the nations, all the families of the earth. It's the source of, it's at the heart that gives blessing and life to all. It's not a nation that is against all the others. It's a nation that is in the Shema. Again, it's divinely created essence. It's not like it's our doing. We have a nice idea, some liberal idea of universalism to be good to others. That's the way it was built. There's an, like I said, the body is built with a heart, with legs, different functions. That's an act of creation. And there's also in the body, besides the heart, the metaphor that the rabbis give, that the Jewish people are the heart of the nations that give life and flow and give the meaning and the direction to all the body, the other limbs. But also, Rav Kook explains, like the neshama of the body. It's the transcending element of life that connects us to the source of life, connects all of reality, all of mankind to something so much greater, something this Archimedes point beyond the world that can uplift the world. That it, this neshama that was from beyond this world comes into this world to raise this world beyond this world. And as fantastic and highfalutin that sounds, that's the reality. That's what's coming back to life now in this historic process of the Jews after 2,000 years coming back to being a nation again, to being this nation, a kingdom of priests and holy nation, to be that leadership, to be that conductor of this orchestra. You have an orchestra, this cacophony, right? They're tuning up. Each one is on alone. A nation here, a nation there. Everyone's on their own, attacking each other and thinking the other one is his enemy, is a threat. And then the, the conductor hits his baton, starts as quiet, and then he starts to put them all together, this beautiful harmony, this symphonic harmony. Am Yisrael is this created essence that has the talent, has the ability, has the soul, like the heart, that is connected to all and links them all and has the ability to unify them all, to unify all of mankind for the benefit of all, not for the downfall, uber allis, that we're better than all for the destruction of all, that we can subordinate. The opposite, 
to elevate all, to connect all. It's this God-given gift. It's not our doing. It's our obligation. It's our responsibility. It's a heavy responsibility to live up to and to be that kingdom of priests and holy nation. And what you should ask is that where we are today. So indeed, the rabbis tell us that this whole process that I'm discussing is just that, a process, a long historical dynamic process of development from like the child goes from uh, infancy and childhood and uh, adolescence and adulthood. There's stages and stages, as we know, as delineated in the prophet Yechezko, Ezekiel 37, the dry bones, how the Jews come back to the land of Israel. First the body, first the physical development, the bones come back together to be a, a skeleton, and then the ligaments and sinews and skin, and then we have a body, a dead body, a cadaver, and then the neshama, then the spirit of life comes into it. That's the whole process in many sources we have from the beginning of Adam Rishon was created such. First the body, from the dust of the earth, and then vayipach papav nishmachim, then I'll blow into him the neshama of life. That's a lot of sources. Now the holidays we have, right, at Pesach, we commemorate first the freedom, independent freedom from the external... Uh, subordination from Paro, from Egypt, and then the spiritual freedom of Shavuot, getting the Torah, the inner content of that living body, and then to fulfill it in Sukkot and Eretz Yisrael. But that's the process of the final redemption that we're living through now, this amazing process of coming back to the physical, the nation coming back to life again, the dedication, the devotion, to think as a nation again. That's the novelty, Rav Kudist emphasized, the novelty of this national consciousness, awareness that is coming back. Up to now, we saw ourselves as individual Jews, as part of a community at best, but as we said before, the absence of the connection to a nation, devotion, dedication, sacrifice, giving of the army today, of soldier, a simple soldier, willing to give his life for the collective, for the whole, to build the nation, without understanding. It's not dependent on his understanding. That's the neshama is coming back, this inner, inner, what we call, I call it not the conscious, subconscious, but the superconscious level. The neshama that is now coming back and beating this national vitality, this national consciousness. When you say the neshama, you mean the national soul, the national soul of the children okay. of Israel. Okay, the collective soul, which the rabbis call the Shekhinah, Knesset Israel, And that is what is behind the source, behind this whole movement of the last 200 years or so, the rebirth of the nation. It starts with the rebirth of the soul from within. It's like a child that is born. The neshama is already there. The neshama is now in earth when he's born. The neshama is complete. But the body develops slowly, slowly, more and more, enables the expression of that soul. But the soul is what's pushing the whole process, even though the baby is not aware of it. The baby can deny it and say, I don't believe in the Shema. I don't believe in soul. I don't believe in God. There's no God in this. I'm building the land of Israel. I'm building a secular state. I'm doing what I want to do. He's not even aware of this, again, super conscious level that is pushing, that driving his very development and his success of his doing and building of the land of Israel, the development of the land and the sacrificing. That comes from the inner Shema. And again, like I said, Rav Kook comes along to reveal and expose the neshama, the source of that, even though the participants themselves are unaware of that very source. Like it says in Yechezko 36, the chapter before the one I just mentioned of the dry bones prophecy, chapter 36 is also the explicit prophecy that Rav Kook used to say of the final redemption that comes even when we're not worthy. Now we're all holy and recognizing the divine significance of having a Jewish statehood in the land of Israel. It comes back even though you're not religious and not holy. It says there in the prophet explicitly that not for your sakes do I do this because of my name that was desecrated. The Jew, the exile prevents this goal that I just mentioned before, this collective holiness of nationhood, of a living nation that broadcasts God's name in the world through its very existence as, again, a unified force of physical and spiritual, of national and religious, you can call it. That is what shows in the living example and, and radiates to the rest of the world how to live this harmony of oneness, of totality. But in the exile, that's fractured. We don't have this living totality. 
We have like a person in the hospital, God forbid, uh, and the lungs on the lung machine, the kidneys on the kidney machine, everything is separate. Thing. And they say, oh, I'm alive. Look, I'm alive. This is Judaism. That's not Judaism. That's, again, the pale image, what we could, the best we could do, even in exile. And that was a miracle. The miracle of our existence can continue against all the odds. That indeed is very amazing. We're speaking about the mission of the Jewish people in history, the need for a nation in order for Israel to fulfill our mission in human history. That goal, by the way, doesn't come through holy individuals. Non-Jews can be very holy individuals, can be righteous, and individual Jews can be very immoral and then not holy. What changes the world, Rav Kook writes in the letters, nations influence nations. God created a nation. Like I said, I'm Zuyat. This nation have I created in me to say my name. You are my testimony. You are my witnesses in this world. You're as a nation. The rabbis write, the Orsameach, the Mara before that, that God does not rest his name on individuals. The Torah was only given to the nation as a whole and can only be kept in its entirety by the whole nation. The nation is, that's the unit that receives the Maral in, in, in Tiferet Israel, chapter 17 and 21. The fathers did not receive the Torah. Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov were holy Jews. They did not receive the Torah. The Torah is not just the book of laws that each one does in their house. The Torah is the Neshama, the, the written, so to speak, written divine ideal, or later written down in the Torah as the, the divine, this light that takes the form of words in the, in the book of the Torah, that is the goal, the soul of life for all of creation. And that comes from the Jewish people as a nation. The Torah was only given when there was a nation. When we, again, when I mentioned before, the unity, right? We, know, we all know that Shavuot, the Torah was given, it says in, in Shemot chapter 19, that when you were unified, by Yichan, when they encamped under the mountain, it says when they were unified, up to now they were bickering and separate and divided. When they got to the nation as one, now they are ready to receive the Torah, as the Orachim HaKadosh explains, and the rabbis point out. The unity of Israel, that's the prerequisite. The whole nation of Israel, we need the totality, just like the Beit HaMikdash, so too the totality. Receiving the Torah is not by me and you and holy Jews that accept the Torah and live the Torah. The Torah is, again, not a codex of laws. Is the Neshama, is this living divine ideal that comes through a living nation, a collective, like I said, the kingdom of priests and holy nation, Hashem Bacharbanu, that God chose it from the nation. He created a nation that lives and has as its life source, not an accepted goal. Later we accept and believe and work and keep, but it, it's a priori, you could call it. It's pre-planted. It, God created this essence of the nation, like it says in Matan Torah, the Maral explains in Tiferet Yisrael in chapter 32, 34, that the coercion of Sinai, the giving of the Torah was forced upon us. Because it's like forced upon you, like reality is, you're, you're born a human being, but I don't want to be, I don't, that, no one asks you, that's your reality. In the Shema of Amish, this inner planting of absolute divine goodness for all, Rav Kook explains in Rosh Yisrael, that's the inner nucleus of the soul, the collective soul of the nation of Israel. Doesn't mean every Jew lives that. We have free will on an individual level. But that's our inner core. If you don't live that way, you're going against yourself. You're not just going against religion. You're going against Judaism. You're going against the Torah laws, some external book of codex of laws. You're going against yourself, your inner, inner nature. Again, the inner, inner nature. The inner true essence of the Jewish people is this divine chunk of light, let's call it, that comes to this world to illuminate the world. And that can only be expressed as a nation in the land, in the land of Israel. Goyachad ba'aret, we say in Mincha, from the verse in Divrei Ayamim, in Shmuel Aleph, that you are one, right, in the Mincha and Shabbat. You are one, your name is one, your ideal is one, and you're revealed to the nation of Israel who is one. When? In the land of Israel, as the rabbis say in the Zohar. In the land of Israel, these two, unification of the land and the people, that is what enables this explosion of energy, threshold of energy, releasing of energy of the neshama to the world, this blessing to the world. What the world is going to regret later, as time goes on, they recognize what they did to themselves by preventing 
the Jews coming back to all the land of Israel. Can we talk about that prevention for a second? Because it, is that something we should understand to also be divinely implanted into history, divinely implanted into the system? The opposition of certain nations, certain empires in human history, including today, certain nations trying to prevent us from taking control over our entire land, living according to our own culture, uh, discovering our own identity and creating a society that functions and expresses our inner identity, that's also built into history, no? That's also divinely important. Yeah, right. If you learn uh, in a few months, you learn the book about Hanukkah of the Maral, Ner Mitzvah, in English, the mitzvah candle. He begins the book with Daniel chapter 7, the prophecy, the dream of Daniel, the vision. He sees these four wild beasts coming out before the final, the final empire. And he explains there, the Maral explains it, based on the, the verse, the first, uh, the second verse in the Torah, Tov Avod, there's these four levels of darkness, of, of, of Tov Avod, void and emptiness. The rabbis say, our rabbis way, way long time ago, the beginning of the oral law, that these represent these four kingdoms that will stand up, try to usurp the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of God, which is revealed through the kingdom of Israel in this world. How do you attack God? The rabbis say, how do you, you can't attack God, so you, you shoot arrows into the heaven. But by attacking his nation, like those that attack the nation, is like attacking God. So this anti-God force that tries to hold up that light and that good for all comes in, like you said, predetermined, pre-revealed, that it will come through these four empires. And Maral explains why four, the total dispersion in all the, the two-dimensional plane, the scattering in four directions, right? In the east, north, south, and west. That's the total dispersion. It's seemingly these four directions of anti-oneness. You read the Maral there, and that's how it's hinted out in the word, the letter hey. I don't want to get into that too much now, but the, the, the letter He is, is made up like a Dalit and a Yud. The Dalit is the four, right? The four is the gematria of the four, the fourth letter of the alphabet, Dalit. And the Yud is the one, the small point. The rabbis say this world is created with the He, and the world to come, the ideal, the spiritual transcending ideal is like a Yud, the smallest point. So the Maral points out that the He is made up of the Dalit and the Yud. The Dalit represents the external, what you see on the surface historically, like you said, Four kingdoms, four elements that try each one in, the, in their own way to destroy us, to hold up the divine light by holding up the divine light of the Jewish people in Israel, by, either by taking us out of Israel, like the Babylonian Empire, or by destroying us physically. The Haman in Purim time, the overcoming of that kingdom in, the, in Greece, trying to destroy us spiritually. And the final time, like you mentioned, I guess, the going up today, the Edom, the fourth and final kingdom of Edom, the Roman, the, the Western world of trying to use all those methods in total greater quantity and quality. 2,000 years of total trying to physically and spiritually destroy us. And then from that comes out the Hashem right? The, the Tov Avot, the second verse in the Torah, that the, all this is hidden in sort of learned from, so to speak, that it's already from the beginning of creation, this is already pre-revealed that before, the Tov Avot, and then this abyss, the final one is this long abyss, this empty abyss, and then after that, the Spirit of God will hover over them. That's the Ruach of the Mashiach, the final, the, the Jewish kingdom that will come back with living what we're living to today. It's amazing if you understand the context of what's going on around, around us today. With all the difficulties, we don't see the, the, the great light that is or part of, of uh, the return to the fifth, the final the kingdom of the Jewish kingdom in order to manifest the kingdom of God, but not the kingdom of God that submits and suppresses and oppresses and represses. But the, the like I said, plugging into this source of electricity, plugging in the world to... The infinite source, the it's just more and more life. It's it's mind-boggling what that means. More life. Maybe we'll get to that if we have time. But uh, and that is indeed what you said. If that was pre-known, but that's also part of the plan. The ability to go through the moral explains 
Why does God put us through this, these four empires? Why can't you just go right to the fifth, the final, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of God that shows good and everyone, it's all good and merry. So the Ma'al explains the depth of the divine good, how, um, what you could call of, simple put, in English maybe, of dealing with and overcoming the difficulties is what brings out a bigger good, the challenge that makes you stronger, the, the dealing with the possibility, you don't have to have evil, but the possibility of evil, the free will, that's what makes man and the good that he re reaches even a better good. But that's another topic, why there's evil in the world temporarily, but why we go through these empires, it's the same thing, these are expressions of evil, expressions of darkness that try to hold up the light, by Eeyore, right? By Eeyore, it's at the beginning of creation, so why don't we have that? First, you'll have to go through these four empires, right? Yaakov's dream, the same thing, where Yaakov sees these four kingdoms going up and down uh, the ladder, and he sees these four kingdoms, empires that we're going to have to go through. And uh, he thinks that maybe also, we're also going to go up and then come down again? No, the final return of the Jewish people, there's no going back again. Like the rabbis say in the Tanhuma Shoftim, Tanhuma of our sages, chapter, how do you say, paragraph 9, it says there are three coming back to the land of Israel. We come back after Egypt, after Babel, and the third return, there's no going out again. We're here for the third and final return. This is the final, the third of Eid the final, the culmination of all the ideal, of all of creation, of all the good, and that's why we have a lot of friction now, like I said, all the different ideas and the truth, everything is now coming and rising up to demand its expression, which is good. The goal isn't to put them all down, but to show how they're all connected. That takes a giant Torah. That's not the usual Torah of just how to keep kosher. How to, you have to keep kosher. But the kosher, that's part of a bigger system of God's good. And that is, you have to study that, to understand that, like I said, like you were talking about, how to see history in that perspective of seeing how the pieces are falling into place. But indeed, that's a predetermined divine methodology, so to speak, of the world. Ramal calls it the heder kodem lahavaya, the absence that precedes existence. The temple being destroyed that makes way and pushes out and facilitates the, the third and final temple. That's why Bikiba was laughing. He understood this understanding that the destruction, the depth of the destruction is what indicates the greatness of the building. Like when you want to build a small building, you can build it on top of a small shack. If you want to build a skyscraper, you have to not only take down the shack, you have to dig a deep foundation, which is the opposite direction. Someone sees you digging, digging down. He says, wait a minute, you want it to build up and you're digging down. He says, no, if you understand properly, the depth of the foundation that I'm digging shows you the, the greatness of the superstructure that I'm building that requires such a strong foundation. So the negative has a positive. These, these four empires that we go through and test us and the trials and tribulations that we've been through like no other nation in the world and come back on top of all that, in spite of all that, and through all that, and now we're coming back with uh, even in stronger levels of energy, of strength, of power, physically and spiritually, to bring about the God's ideal, which again is totality, is the fullness of life. Not less life, not to be spiritual bunch of monks, but a nation, the power, that's what we're coming back to, slowly but surely, the economy, uh, now there's problems, ups and downs maybe, but ultimately the economy and the, the army and the, all of these things that be strong and all of that ultimately will reveal that they're driven by a force of goodness, of godliness, of holiness, of giving, of helping. As we see, you know, there's an earthquake somewhere in the world, we send out all our planes and all our energy, Turkey and Mexico, the Jews are the first ones there. That's our neshama that need to help and to, to change, to, to help the world. We end every prayer. To fix this world under God's kingdom. To link up, like it's to plug in the world to godliness. Everyone should benefit, not for our benefit. We're just the, I want to call it just the functionary, but it's the heart, the neshama. It's the neshama is beyond the body, but it comes to, the whole goal is to infuse the body, to elevate the body. The body becomes holy. The body becomes, like I said, the holy unto God. Everything, and there's levels and levels even beyond that, but I don't want to get too far-fetched. It sounds like it's some science fiction. But that's the reality of what we're coming back to now. It's amazing. And the more you study, and that's what Cook uh, taught us, to try to more and more to understand and to learn these uh, collective or national universal goals. 
But the rabbi said, this comes slowly, slowly, stage by stage. It's not all perfect all at once. For those that will criticize and say, but look at this and look at this, and there's no lack of what is lacking. <laughs> I can't say there's no problem of finding a list. They're experts of showing all what's wrong with the state of Israel. But the fact that it's not complete doesn't mean it hasn't begun. This is a process that has begun that has no, there's no end to it. In other words, no, they say no stop. Like the rabbis say, the Hamish Lishit, the third time we come back, there's no ending. It comes slowly, slowly. Our goal and our obligation is to understand that, to help it continue, not to laugh at the adolescent that now is rebelling and rejecting and, and suicidal tendencies. Oh, you see, I told you. No, to help him get past that page to, to adulthood. No, that's what Avkuk teaches us, to see the bigger vision, to see where he's going, what's really behind him, what he really is, not what he says he is, to understand who he truly is, and that's why you'll succeed. Because that you're not trying to force him to be someone else, to convert him, to uh, change him, to make him religious and to leave what he was, but to reveal what he really is. That you put a mirror in front of him, like a body rejects transplants, external. But this isn't something external. The Torahs aren't a Shema. And the more you understand this and live that, you actually can bring about that he becomes aware of himself. You actually just wake up in him that inner content and he becomes more connected to the land of Israel, to the people of Israel, to the goal, and brings the redemption to its completion. Without the Shem, that's what we have to try to do and study. <laughs> Rav Moshe, you've given us a lot to consider. I know that listeners are going to be struggling with a lot of this, and I think you've done an amazing job articulating, uh, really on one foot, Rav Cook's perspective of the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, the redemption process, and how we should understand and facilitate it. The last question I want to ask you is, you know, we're in the month of Elul, heading towards Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. A lot of Jews are talking about tshuva, like this is a theme of this time of year, the theme of tshuva. Uh, Rav Kook has a somewhat different understanding, maybe somewhat bigger understanding of what this concept of tshuva actually means. Most Jews relate to this concept of tshuva as repentance, return. Uh, Rav Kook has a, a greater understanding, a larger, a more holistic understanding. I'd just like to ask you to share that with our listeners before I let you go. Well, I'm just on the other foot then, I'll try to do it quickly. But indeed, the individual tshuva is part of a much greater understanding and totality of tshuva. Rav Kook takes the universal understanding, the whole view of how the world was created, how it fell from its goal, what it was supposed to be, so to speak. It's part of the plan from creation, how the world doesn't start off exactly as the final goal. It, goes, it unfolds. That purposely has the idea, like a, an architect has the whole plan in front of him, sees the whole building, he has all the plans, and then... What you see in front of you, the nails, the hammers, whatever, it's all a balagan, it's all a mess, confusion, and then slowly, slowly, the process unfolds to fulfillment of what was in the original ideal. So too, Rav Cook explains how the world fell from the ideal, you could call it, in the mind of God, the totality, and our world, of what we see in the fracture, the time and space of past, present, and future, this whole goal is unfolding, the guarantee that it will unfold, because it's already there. But like I said, the, the Shema of the baby, that's already there, it just needs the body to more and more develop and be able to fulfill it. But it's, no, there's no ifs about it. This will be, the divine ideal will be. So too, this uh, tshuva is the return of the world. Returning to, what does it mean return? Return to where you were. The Kuk says the whole concept of tshuva is not just repentance, but it's more, I would say, if in English I had to use the word return, like the Maral explains, returning to, from where you came, and, but not just you individually. That's the, there's one level of creation fell. I'll just try to do this very, very quickly the let's say the ideal of creation and then there's the creation itself the actualization the world is already separate is already distinct from the creator there's a gap so to speak that uh, there's a falling from the source the absolute divine there's no borders no limits to the beyond any words understanding 
and then it becomes into worldliness. And then that's original falling, like it says in the beginning of the Torah, right? The God meant that the tree should have the taste, eight pre, the tree that has the taste of the fruit. And later it says, no, that the earth put out the tree that gives fruit. Now there's a distinction between the ideal, of Cook explained in the Tshuva, between the means and the ideal. There's uh, the gap between the goal and what is taking place in front of us. Then, so that's the world by just by very active creation, it's already separate, it's already distant, that it has to return now to that goal. Not only does it not return, but man comes on the scene, the first man, and he puts in his wedge, he puts in his two cents, and puts in a barrier, his sin, that drives the world even another gap between the goal and reality. And then we come on the scene to return the world back to what Adam Rishon was, and then to bring what he was supposed to do, to bring the world back to the source, to totally connect it to the absolute source. Sometimes we also come and add our two cents, so to speak, negative two cents, and put another barrier. What is a chet? A chet means a block, a lacking. The chataim and the malachim, the pasuk says, the lacking. We put another sin that puts another barrier between the light and our world, like another cloud between the sun and, and what we receive here. So usually what Shuvah deals with that third level of you and your sins, the private level, like you said, you and your sin, repentance, return, you did a sin, go back and be better and fix your ways. That's only one level. Even if we didn't sin, or even after we fix our sins, we have to do the go back to the world, what Adam Rishon was, but he pulled down the world myriads of, of levels and levels of darkness between the ideal and the real. And that's what we have to do to bring us to that. And then we have to still, after we finish that, we have to bring to what he was supposed to do originally, to bring the world to reconnect the, all the branches of existence to the source from which they came up. Right? That's the definition of chuva to reconnect the branches of life to the source from which they came. So ultimately, you know, it's, it's universal tshuva. Like you said, it's beyond the scope of me and my mitzvot. It includes that. That's the third level, so to speak. But there's the tzadadam rishon, and then to bring the world. It's like the spring that goes down, and our whole goal of history is just to return the world and to participate. That's the world is in that process of, of tshuva. Not only man, all the world, he said. The worlds are in the spring that came down, so to speak, and now it's all history is this function of going and pushing and returning back, this magnetic pull, you could call it, back to the source with all the ups and downs in the middle. And our goal is to participate in that and to facilitate the process to return, again, the universe to, to connect it to the source beyond, to link up with the one. And then all is one, all is divine, all is so good, like even holy unto God, even down to the horse and the physical, everything becomes elevated. Life becomes the knowledge of God. It says in Yeshayahu chapter nine, 11, in verse number nine, the knowledge of God will fill the earth. Not to talk about Rabbi how he used to point out the understanding of that verse, but never the, the fulfillment and infusion of all so that's the level of tshuva. Our national tshuva is part of this uh, return. The rabbis, Rabbi Yonatan Ibishit and uh, others, the Or Sameach writes, that when you return to your nation, certainly you return to God, because that's part of the process. Returning to the nation, the returning to be a nation again, that's return, that's tshuva, the return, return, tshuva. To return to be a nation, a vital living nation again, that is tshuva. Not only is it the first stage of tshuva and afterwards comes the second level, the individual level, the personal level down to the practice of the mitzvot and the conscious awareness, but it also facilitates it. The rabbis say that the, the return to Torah not only follows the return to Eretz Yisrael, but it's caused by it. The rabbi said, Moshchen Yacharecha, in Shir Shirim Rabbah, the Midrash says, how you come back to Israel, that will bring you back to the Torah. This whole process of going back to your normal state and becoming more healthy in the air of the land, and then you'll get the neshama, this infusion from above, and more and more the, the process unfolds of returning back to as seemingly maybe to some that may seem very distant and remote from reality but we'll see you'll see that that's the real reality of what's taking place here of the jews that are so ready and so looking for 
part of the problems is because they're looking and not being supplied with the how to utilize, how to fulfill that goal, but the search for the divine, so the search for the absolute good, for the search for this connection to God, and it goes in different directions. So people search for drugs or this or new isms, but it's the same, it's a search for the super, the final connection to God. And the coming back to Israel facilitates. So the, the, the national tshuva, that, like I said, in Yechezko 36 and 37, precedes the individual tshuva. You don't have to wait for it. They just won't have to do and fix their individual ways as well. But in the process of history, we see this return of a secular, so to speak, national return, which is good on one hand. The nation's coming back alive again, but the individuals aren't on the level and not performing the mitzvot. But that's the, again, like it says in Yechezko 36 there, that the, not for your sake, I'm first I'm bringing you back to the land, and that's a positive process of return, of tshuva. And then the Rabbi Yonatan says that's the Ikara tshuva, the return to the land, that's the main tshuva. He brings it down in Eba Melismecha, you can see that in English, that book, and then we come back to the Torah and mitzvot on the individual level. So again, we have to have all these levels. Each one of us has to work on our individual level, certainly, of purification, of goodness, of holiness, of righteousness, and our traits, and our attributes, and our, our ways of thinking, aspirations, and participating in more and more the collective, understanding that we're part of a bigger scheme. Our tshuva is, how do you say, in flow with the national and universal tshuva. We're part of, I'm not just doing my private thing, getting my brownie points. What I'm doing, my participation in, the, in my individual tshuva is part of and connected to and bring in harmony with the whole flow of history of returning the world, the universe, all of creation to link up to its source, to the super tshuva. So that's each one of us, maybe can go with that message for this Elul of returning to ourselves, but again, not into ourselves, in and of ourselves, but as part of this collective whole of the nation, which is part of bringing the world and the universe back to its normal full state of goodness, of the flow of divinity, of God, of light, of life, which I talked about, I told you, I didn't get to explain what that means, but more life than we have today, more than we think is available today. We think that that's all there is. What we see, maybe less disease, less suffering, less stealing and cheating, but that's not the end of the divine good is much more for the world. And linking up to that infinite source, that infinite more infuses and permeates the finite until the, the finite becomes less and less finite. As you know, right, the body becomes infinite and more immortal. But that's more to talk about. But that's what the nation of Israel, we see this immortal nation that continues throughout history, like the non-Jews recognize, Mark Twain and Tolstoy and Vico, how it's meta-history. The Jewish people is eternal content. But nevertheless, that's the tshuva we have to do, the individual tshuva in context of the collective and national and universal tshuva. Well, thank you so much, Moshe, for coming on the show and illuminating all of that. Thanks for having me, having the patience. <laughs> if listeners have any follow-up questions, can I put them in touch with you? Yes, definitely. I'd be happy to try to help or assist. I'll give listeners the time to digest and uh, really ask that they uh, don't be shy about reaching out if they have any questions or want to clarify some of the concepts spoken about on the show today. Again, thank you so much for coming on. All the best. This is Yudah Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Don't forget to click like and give a review, positive review, and you can check out the show notes at visionmag.org backslash the next stage 34.